masterful, Audrey. I did wonder how hanging on to the mustard seed was going to go. So <laughs> that was unbelievable. So we have been working through the, um, the New Testament letter to the Romans, and so we're going to continue in chapter 5 today. Um, I was reminded of something before we read the passage that might help us kind of just uh, approach this passage. So I uh, grew up in eastern Pennsylvania in a small town there. Um, I had a very, very sweet relationship with my grandfather. We had dinner every Sunday at his house. My grandfather kept the books for my dad's uh, family business, so since I was at the business pretty much every day anyway, I spent most days with my grandfather. And um, one of the things that was always funny about hanging out at the family business with my grandfather and dad is all these people would come into my dad's pharmacy and pull me aside um, to talk to me about my grandfather with stories that they had about him when they went to school in the vicinity of the same pharmacy. So my grandfather, uh, in his teenage years, he was a coal miner in central, central Pennsylvania, and he thought, I do not want to do this for a lifetime. He got out of there, got an education, and then ended up becoming a teacher, a principal, and then superintendent of a tiny school district that bordered where my dad's pharmacy was. Um, apparently, uh, my grandfather was a force to be reckoned with. A lot of people had a lot of stories to me about why, reasons why they had uh, a cause to be scared of my grandfather, but I didn't know him that way. I mean, he was, I, when I knew when I was in my grandfather's presence was uh, he always had some surprise for me or something to share, he had some reason he was interested in me, something that we liked to do is go on walks together, and a place where he took me regularly was a mountain just outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania, near Reading, called Hawk Mountain, where we would go and climb uh, this sort of, maybe it was like, you know, 1,300-foot peak called the Pinnacle. And I remember my grandfather would pack um, a uh, booklet with him where he would keep track of the birds that he saw. Um, and we'd talk about it. And one of the things that he loved to do is when we get to the pinnacle of this walk, we would look down and he would try to identify the birds that were flying below us. And it was just always kind of a, it was a cool time for me as a kid. I got to spend time with my grandfather. But for today's purposes, like, that was something I never could see is birds from the top down. But you're not going to see that. When you live on the ground in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, you don't, you know, there's hardly any wildlife there anyway. <laughs> but on top of that, you never had that particular vantage point where you're looking down and you're seeing eagles and raptors and hawks. But you're seeing them from the top down. Then you're with your grandfather who's helping you figure out that bird is this, that bird is that. And kind of talked about those things the rest of the day. I was thinking about that because I, I kind of think it's helpful when we approach this passage to think about the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the church at Rome, and we're also the recipients now of this letter in Holy Scripture. The Apostle Paul, it's as if he is taking us by the hand as someone who loves us, and wants to give us a particular vantage point that you can only get if your feet are set on something in particular. In this case, it's justification. That when you when he's been the Apostle Paul's been talking about justification by faith. And in this passage, he is saying, when we stand 
from the vantage point of the church's justification by faith, there are things that we could see that there's no other way that you could see them. And that's where we go today as we prepare to read the Scripture. I'm going to read it, then we can pray together. This is from Romans 5. This is verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by by him from the wrath of God? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, I want to thank you for the gift of your word. There are things that we would never know unless you reveal it to us in your holy Word. And today we see that Jesus justifies the ungodly. And then there is wonderful things, blessings that we can only see from that vantage point. Lord, fill us with your Spirit and open up your Word to us and give us ears to hear the good news as we're gathered here today. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Paul begins this passage with the, therefore, uh, since we have been justified by faith. Um, I wanted to start there just for a second to kind of help us catch up. If you remember, Steve's been preaching through the book of Romans. So, we've talked uh, early on about um, who is it that needs to be justified. The answer is everyone. And then, um, how is it that God justifies us? And that's by faith in Jesus Christ. So we've, we've got the who, we've got the how, and now Paul is turning a little bit of a corner, and he's anticipating some questions that might come up for people. So you, Paul has declared the gospel, our need of the gospel, and how the gospel happens, Jesus Christ's sacrifice for sinners. But he's anticipating, and he's going to do this the rest of the book too, that sometimes we, as religious people, questions come up for us. And sometimes those questions don't come from a great place. They might come from sort of cynicism or a hard heart or just a desire to kind of do something religious for God. And so what Paul does in this passage is he is beginning to paint a picture 
of the justified life. So if Jesus justifies sinners, if Jesus justifies the ungodly, and we're standing on that right now, now he wants us to see that there is a particular life that belongs to the justified sinner. And it is a warm and it is a dynamic life. And it's a life that is full of blessings. So he takes this sort of what can sometimes be a forensic and cold fact for us, and he blows it up here in this passage into a wonderful truth about who God is and what it's like to belong to him. Also, I want to remind you, Steve led us through this a couple weeks ago, but what justification means. So justification, when Jesus justifies sinners, what that means is not simply that God forgives us, but it's more than that. It's not only that we're forgiven, but it's also that God declares us righteous before God. Now, that's very significant, because if you just think about yourself as forgiven, you might think, may I have a clean slate uh, moving forward, but it's more than that. That as God the Father looks at you, you're robed, as we just sang, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ the Son. And so you have God's total favor forever as he looks at you. And that's what Paul is trying to blow up before our eyes here too. So Paul's trying to say the truth of your justification just results in all these incredible blessings now as the people of God. Um, every Sunday, I don't just worship here, I also worship at another church. Nothing to worry about there. It's just part of my job. And so um, there's a church that I go to in the evenings, and this church has a particular liturgy that they do because they're a small church. And it's, part, it's a liturgy I really, really like. And that is, so you guys know, we do our call to worship, and then we say, hey, everybody, greet each other. And we take like three minutes tops to do that. We don't want to make people too uncomfortable. So, Rick, you did a great job. Just say hi to someone. Do a little bit of glad handing, but take your seats because, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it can be awkward for people. But this church, because pretty much everybody knows each other and well, the way that they do it is, okay, let's read the Apostles' Creed together every week. And we're saying, this is what's true. Okay, we're declaring the faith together. This is what we believe is the people of God. And then they do a thing called the passing of the peace. It's their greeting time. But these folks, they take like 15 minutes to do this, okay? It's like, it's like a long time of fellowship. And the, but the, the reason why they do that is they say, we have just declared what's true, and now we're going to take just 15 minutes to act like not only did Jesus accomplish our peace, but now we can actually share some peace with each other. So I watch what happens during that time. And sometimes people are laughing together. Sometimes people are crying together. Sometimes people are apologizing to each other. Sometimes people are taking an interest in each other's kids. Sometimes people are making appointments for after worship. Like all kinds of stuff going on. Paul's trying to say here is, now that you have peace, now that you've been justified, then there's a way to live in light of that, right? It's kind of like that liturgy at that church. So there's three things that Paul brings out here that we stand on the vantage point of our justification and faith. When that rock-solid truth of that Jesus has died for the ungodly, what does that mean now for us in our life as the church, our life as the people of God? And he brings up three things. And let's put the next slide up there for me, Scott. He's going to say in this passage, first of all, if you are justified in Christ, you have peace with God. The next thing he says is that if you're suffering and you will, 
Your suffering is redeemed. And finally, he's going to talk about, church, I want you to know this is the punchline for you. You are loved by Jesus Christ. Loved by Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about peace. We're going to talk about suffering. We're going to talk about the love of God in Jesus Christ. Take those one at a time for this morning. Um, What happens to you when you feel just sort of unsettled because our relationship's not right? Can you think of any place in your life where that might be the case where stuff's tense with a family member or stuff's awkward with a friend or stuff is out of sorts with a coworker, right? So when we feel unsettled in relationships, we can do a number of things, right? We feel this sort of lack of peace. We can either deny or avoid or just work overtime to try to, you know, patch things up. Like, those things can, you know, they, they really, really affect us. And so Paul knows that's the way sinners are enduring in this life, that we feel an unsettled feeling a lot. So Paul tries to make it clear that there is, for the people of God, for the justified, there is a confidence that comes from just knowing that we are settled with God. I had a friend yesterday come to me because he had to have a hard conversation with somebody, and one of the things we did when he came to me, I said, well, you know, as you plan this conversation, let's talk about the why you would have this conversation. What reason would you have it? And the reason why he would have this this hard conversation is the hard conversation was with someone who was uh, in his family. And he's like, I've got to have peace in my family. I have to. And so we talked about that, that what it meant, God had made him family with this person, and it was time to act and live like that. The same sort of thing here, that um, God sees that we are unsettled and out of sorts with Him, and so He takes matters into His own hands in justification to settle things, so that His abiding word for the church is, I've already settled that. You had a broken relationship with me, and I'm not surprised by that. You were fleeing from me. You were dead in your sins, but I I justified the ungodly. And so now, my whole face to you is, listen, it's settled between us. And that's always our starting point when we think about the justified life. He talks about three things that, you know, if things are settled between you and God because of the work of Christ, all of a sudden now there's this idea of that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that word peace there. Sometimes we, um, we love the... Um, the Hebrew version of that, shalom, which talks about human flourishing and life to the full, right? But this idea of peace is that you're set at one. It's an idea of, it's an idea of unity, that, that idea of no longer are you unsettled, but you now, when you have peace with God, you're set at one with Him. Um, also, this idea of not only that God set us at peace with Himself, but we have this idea of Grace is the place where we now stand. It's the air that we breathe for the people of God, for the justified. Grace has got to surround us, and it does. Every day, I need the full measure of the grace of God, and God doesn't hold that back from us. And then there's this idea, too, that 
when things are settled between you and God, that your hope is a certain kind of hope. It says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We're looking forward to a destination as the justified, which is the very heaven of God. It's the, it's the place of where God dwells and the people of God are brought into that forever. Now we know that by faith, but one day we're going to stand before God and He's going to say, come into my glory, justified one. I, um, I think this, that last one is, I think, sometimes hard for, they're all hard for us, but I, I think that last one is hard for us because we, we sometimes can have trouble with this idea that the church can anticipate that day of our Savior's revealing, and it's going to be just a sweet and awesome day. Like, no more fear. I know some of you were downstairs you know, talking about the book of Revelation while we were up here in the first service. That's a lot of the heart of that book. There's some scary images in the book of Revelation, but not for those that know the Lamb, right? For those that know the Lamb, it's like a day of anticipation. Like, oh, it would be so good to be brought into that glory. But, you know, for us, a lot of times we, we, we're tempted to think that judgment day is like being called up to the principal's office. I imagine like what people felt like when they were called up to my grandfather Elmer F. Green's office, you know, that the reason why there were all these stories about him being a scary man, right? We have, the, we have those sort of stories in our history where it's scary to come face to face with an authority. But it's not like that. Paul says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He, he paints it as a picture of a it's, a, it's a beautiful place, a beautiful reunion. I heard a fantastic story from one of our members in the last few weeks about two sisters. And these two sisters, one was on her deathbed. These were family members. One was on her deathbed and was dying. And the other sister was a believer in Jesus Christ who came to her dying sister's side and so, in the conversation on this deathbed, the healthy sister says to the dying sister, don't you want to go to heaven? And then she goes on to clarify which heaven we're talking about, right? And she says, you know, it's the heaven that Jesus died to open up for us. So that, that heaven, it's the Jesus live in heaven. And then she goes on to begin to coach her dying sister, to get ready to go to glory. I just thought this was an, an amazing story, an amazing thing to do, something I wanted to grow on. I, I, I wanted to be like, I, when I heard this, I was like, I'd like to be better at coaching my friends and receiving some coaching myself that, you know, get ready to go to glory. But the way she kind of enticed her to cross on over was to say, it is so beautiful there. And Jesus is there. Those two things. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you could say about heaven. You could talk about the reunions or whatever, but she just said, it's so beautiful there. Jesus died to open it up, and Jesus is there. And I was, I was kind of instructed by that. To think about that. I think that's like Paul's spirit today when he's talking about the hope of the glory of God and rejoicing in that. It's just a kind of joy and happiness that comes from saying, I one day will cross on over. And so, 
I have peace in the past based on the work of Christ. I have grace right now in every day of my life, and one day when it all comes to fruition, I will walk through death into glory. And it's going to be absolutely beautiful in there. Jesus is there. So Paul says if you're justified, not only is everything settled with God, but also he talks here about suffering. And this is such an important message for us Suffering is so hard for us. I know that what happens to me is sometimes I just suffer a little bit in my days, and it can be spiritual suffering. It can just be that, you know, things aren't going my way. And immediately I just start to come unglued, come apart. Just wonder what's wrong. Something's deeply wrong. What's wrong? Paul paints a picture here, first of all, to say that suffering's normal for the human being, and then there's a suffering that's normal for the Christian which is super important. So don't be surprised, folks, when you suffer. It's part of the life, and it's part of the Christian life, but it's more than that. Our suffering no longer is just meaningless to us, but our suffering has meaning. So there is a strength to help us face suffering in this life, come what may, that comes from knowing that it's normal, that it's a part of the life, and there's also a strength that comes from knowing that's not meaningless in God's hands. It says in verses 3 and 4 that we can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering is productive in God's hands. It's no longer the end of the story that you suffer and die. It's God is redeeming suffering at such a deep level that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. You start to look more and more like the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, as the Lord works in our suffering, and character produces, again, hope. This sort of sense of raising your vision that there is something more than what I see with my own suffering eyes. I remember um, before Kim and I had our first child, Um, Kim came to me and said, I am so excited that we are about to give birth to our first child, and I want to do it without any sort of drugs. Okay, so now for me, as the husband, I was like, why would you do that? Doesn't make any sense to me. And she says, well, um, I really, really just want to be like totally present and in it. And so um, I was like, okay, you're the one giving birth, so I'll do what you want to do. Absolutely. And she says, well, we're going to get some training on this, so we're going to go over. There's a class over at the hospital, and they're going to show some videos and, and tell us how we can get ready to kind of give birth without drugs. And I was like, okay. So Kim and I sat through several videos showing a woman her progression from, the, from you know, being very pregnant to having a baby, and boy, it looked painful to me. It looked super painful. Um, there, <laughs> there, was a, there, was a, there was a lot of pain in this video. Um, and it was just interesting. I thought it would dissuade Kim. I was like, are you sure you want to do this? And she, it just became more, I don't know, purposeful for her, more, more meaningful. I think it's a, a thing that, for me as a man, I, I, I just kind of wonder at that, that, re, that remarkable desire for someone, a woman, to be willing to endure pain. But it makes sense if you think about it that that pain, there's a, a hope of a good outcome. 
right? We don't have a lot of pain like that in our life where you feel like, I expect if I go through this pain, then on the other side of that will be the blessing of a child. I, you know, and I do know giving birth is very, very risky, and some of us have suffered quite a bit around the desire to give birth or the loss of children. But that whole thing that mothers tend to have is just, it's just something I just stand in awe of. Paul says here that we should have that same sort of vision for the suffering in our lives, that our God is at work and, you know, there is, will be at the end, birthed in a very real sense, hope. And he, he goes, he, he kind of reasons from the suffering of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that Jesus entered into our suffering and our death, and he did it with the expectation that justification would have its effect justifying the ungodly and bearing out all this fruit and strengthening the church of God until that day when we will see him face to face. Jesus sets up his home in the midst of our sin and suffering to magnify his grace and his glory. Um, one of the um, things I get a chance to do here at the church is we have a, a small uh, gospel and race discipleship team. It's something we think about on a regular basis to think about um, how do we shepherd the people of the church in light of um, what the Scripture says about, you know, race and about ethnicity, um, and also how can we be peacemakers and reconcilers in our church and culture as well? So we, it's something that I, I find it to be very helpful for me to be a part of this team. And One of the things that we've uh, set our sights on in the next year is we want to, from time to time, pause as a church and just say, is there anything the church can learn? This church can learn from the, um, the witness of the African-American church or the witness of the persecuted church in the world. And I think that suffering is often so alien to me that I'm eager. I'm saying, I would love to hear from those that have suffered how it is that God meets them and raises their expectation of His redemption in light of their suffering. Paul's doing a similar thing here to raise our expectation that there's an end to it. And then the last thing that Paul brings up, not only does he say it's all settled with God for the justified and that your suffering is meaningful for the justified, but he also says, justified ones, I want you to know something, that there is just a courage in life that comes from knowing that you're loved by God. It's just kind of amazing to say that, that, that we're loved by God. <laughs> Think about what happens whenever you feel unloved or disregarded in life. I, I have a relationship right now. It's a relationship that I interact with every week. And in that relationship, the feeling of it is disdain and contempt. And I, oh, I, I know you guys have got those too. It's just a, it's a tough thing to bear up with, you know. I like to be with people who like me. I like to be with people who love me. I don't like to be with people who have contempt for me. We suspect that about God sometimes. And this is Paul wants to make something crystal clear to us. That's not our God. We might struggle with human relationships where there is disdain and contempt but you do not struggle with that in your relationship with the living God. 
Jesus Christ took the place of the ungodly, the enemies of God, the rebels, the sinner. And when he did that, part of taking the place of the ungodly is the wrath and the anger of God in full is laid on Jesus Christ. And Paul says, so church, as you're going forward, enjoy that peace, know your suffering is meaningful, but you, there will never, ever be a day from now into eternity where you cannot know that God loves you and your Father's favor is on you. Paul talks a little bit about our experience of God's love. He says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a truth, but I think it's something that's meant to be felt. That there are some times where we know, we feel confirmed in our hearts of the love of God because Jesus died to set up His home in the hearts of believers. But there's more than that. He says, I want you to know that because the cross happened, because the Son of God endured that cross for you, you are always and unshakably loved. Paul says it would take a very loving person to die for another person. Okay, to have that kind of sacrificial death in human experience. It would take a very loving person. But it happens from time to time. We see it. But he says, but even a super loving person would not die for an evil one. Right? That doesn't make sense to us. Why would a, a person die for an evil person? But that's what Jesus did. But that's what Jesus did. And so Paul wants to make it clear that for the justified, and one of the things you can only see from that vantage point of being justified is you can look out and see I can only see now the love of God for me. And I just wonder at that. How can that be? We sing a hymn around here sometimes called How Firm a Foundation. And one of the lines in it is, What more can he say than to you he hath said? What more is there to be said? And the hymn writer's talking about two things. He's talking about the Word of God, that God's made it clear in His Word about who Jesus is and what He's done, but also just in His Son. That in that final Word of Jesus Christ, the Son, our justifier, what more can be said? You're loved. God loves you. Your Father loves you. Your elder brother loves you. The Spirit poured out into your heart is a spirit of love to ever be leading you to see the Son and see the Father. I had a chance to go to see my niece in uh, her high school musical last week. It was an amazing experience for so many reasons. You know, these things are just like, just incredible. But one of the things that really struck me was we were in a small auditorium with a small number of people and what could happen was the, the actors on the stage could actually see the faces of the people that were sitting in the auditorium chairs. And so 
This was her very first musical and her first sort of foray into high school life. And so this woman just kept on looking out at us, the row of family and of friends, and kind of locating herself with respect to us. So she would do interacting, she'd be singing her songs, she would be getting ready for her next sort of scene, and she was always kind of looking out for us. And she just wanted to see, like, where are my people, okay? And if we gave her any encouragement at all, any thumbs up, you know, any kind of smile and bright eyes, you could just see she went into overdrive. And she sang that song at level 11. Or she, you know, just acted with uh, at the next level of vigor or something like that, right? So and that makes sense. She was able... She was doing something hard, acting in the high school musical, and something that was a great risk. But what gave her strength to do that is she could go out and she could locate the ones that loved her and were for her and the ones that she belonged to. Paul's point here is that we, uh, in the Christian life, if you're justified, we have this privilege now of every day being able to go up to the vantage point of the justified and look out and locate ourselves with respect to the one who loves us. We can take, take, you know, turn from our sin, our self, our trouble, our suffering, our pain, our insecurity, and we can look at the one who died for us and say, oh, I'm going to anchor myself to that. I belong to that one today. Paul says we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have the opportunity to come to the table. Hear these words of institution as they come to us from the Gospel of Luke. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Let's confess our sins before God and our neighbor together. O God of grace, in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. I need to repent of my repentance 
I need my tears to be washed. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me. And you are always bringing forth the best robe. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the exceeding wonder of grace. Amen. Justified ones, lift your heads and hear this good news. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 